Yeah, uh, on Friday uh, it was really exciting. Susan and I got invited to a special occasion. Uh, Safe Families were celebrating 10 years. And many of you here, quite a lot of you, were involved and have been involved through the last 10 years in Safe Families. And so it was a great thing. And Stacey is with us today. I'm not going to ask you to speak, Stacey, because you didn't come along intending to speak this morning. But uh, it's a great work. And if you haven't given to that Jelly Welly walk which was taking place all over the country, um, please do give uh, C. Stephen and he'd be happy to give, take your money off you. Yeah, that's good. And uh, it's, it's exciting. We saw a little chart of how it started in the northeast with one little dot in the Durham, Newcastle area and Middlesbrough area. And now when you look at the dots, it's going right across the country. And it's at nearly 200 staff, 180 staff or something like that which is amazing, isn't it? Uh, so thank you, everybody, who took part. Uh, our text today, for us to focus on, is uh, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. And that's, those of you that are following in the Immerse course will know that's the text for during the week. Uh, a husband came down to breakfast and was delighted to hear his wife say, Darling, you are a model husband. He was so encouraged by that remark that it put him on a high all morning. <laughs> Terry's laughing. Darling, you are a model husband. At lunchtime, he decided to look up the word model in his desk dictionary. And as he found the page and began reading the description, his mood changed instantly. It said, model a small plastic imitation of the real thing. <laughs> but then he read on and it said, including someone who is exemplary, commendable, admirable, excellent. Now, I've got to say something here. Susan's never called me a model husband. Come to think of it, she's never said that I was exemplary. She's never said that I was commendable. She's never said that I was admirable or even, you might have hoped for, excellent. <laughs> but I don't feel too despondent after all these years of being married, Derek. Did you ever get used any of those words? <laughs> anyway. This morning, <laughs> this morning's not about me or even about Derek. Uh, it's about Joseph. And um, what we've read from Joseph uh, in our studies leads us to think that it was a guy who was a genuine leader, that he had integrity. Now, you might have thought at the beginning when his father gave him that fancy coat to wear, that he was maybe a bit big-headed and showed it off a bit, you know. But that was when he was younger. But as we read into his life as he got older, he became a man of integrity. And we can be impressed by that. Whatever background you put him against, he remained true to himself and importantly true to God. You need look no further than the way he handled the famine, which is our title today, Famine in, in the Land. Joseph is in prison. He interprets the cupbearers and bakers' dreams. 
The cupbearer survived, sadly, the baker lost his head. And uh, Joseph, two years later, has a dream. Sorry, two years later, Pharaoh has a dream. And the cupbearer tells Pharaoh that Joseph interprets dreams. And so they come, and it turns out the dream is about seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. And Joseph is appointed as second in command and puts into action the plan to save Egypt. By then, Joseph was 30 years old. And the story we're looking at today, there's two strands to it. There's the strand where Joseph has a plan, seven years of feast and uh, plenty, and then seven years of famine. But there's also the story linked through that, interwoven of it, about Joseph and his family and what happened to Jacob and his brothers. So let's look first of all at the famine thing. So the famine was really uh, going to happen and Joseph was aware of that. And so for seven years they collected into the barns all the good extra food they had. They produced more, they didn't waste any, they stored it all away. And then when the famine came, they were in a place where they could deal with it. It's reported that uh, food is essential. It's reported that 11 millionaires went down with the Titanic. Their money didn't help them in any shape or form. One of them in particular, a guy called Major Peckin, left $300,000 in money, jewelry and securities in a box in his cabin. The money seemed a mockery at the time, he said. I picked up three oranges instead. In a time of famine, you can't eat gold. Values change. In a time of famine, a piece of bread could buy a bag of gold. Now most of us have no idea what it's like to be really hungry. We might use the expression which our kids often use, isn't it? I'm starving. What's for tea? I'm starving. We're not really starving. We just feel a little bit hungry that we're ready for a meal. But across the world, every year, 11 million people die of starvation. In the United States, 34 million people are overweight. I don't know how many million people are overweight in England. Maybe you count yourself amongst those people. People who are continually hungry in Ethiopia, 20% of the population. In Sudan, 20% of the population. In Mozambique, 30 to 40% of the population are continually hungry. Now what I like about this story of Joseph is, he didn't seek to rip off the public. He didn't seek to stash some of the money he was making for himself. You nowhere read that Joseph was corrupt. His integrity and honour shine through the passage. passage. Joseph was willing to sell the grain to the Egyptian people. He did charge them because he was a wise businessman, but he didn't exploit the people. The distribution was done exactly and in order, and all the money went into Pharaoh's bank account. Joseph didn't set up some offshore account where he was ciphering money into. 
He put all the money in, in, in obeying Pharaoh and doing what he needed to do. Now, the famine went on, and when it ended, the crops were harvested again, and one-fifth of the money was given to Pharaoh. The rest would belong to the people, the food, the fodder, the seed for the next crop. Now, notice the reaction of the Egyptians to Joseph. The Egyptians recognized that Joseph as a savior of the people. They didn't see him as somebody who'd taken all their crops, taken all their money, taken all their land, taken themselves into slavery. They recognized that he was the savior. Despite losing everything, they didn't resent Joseph, but actually honored him. They knew that it was his wisdom and his leadership skills that kept them and the thousands of their fellow countrymen from starving to death. He also saved the livestock from perishing, so they had something to live for and to use after the famine was finished. Now, the other plot that was going through there, apart from Joseph feeding all the people and, and providing for them so they didn't perish, was this subplot about the, the, the brothers. Now, we know that what happened was Jacob and the brothers they began to get hungry like the rest of the land and they sent Joseph, and Jacob sent his brothers up to see Joseph. Joseph knew that one of the brothers was missing so he sent them back again and left Benjamin uh, as a sort of hostage in a sense there until it was sorted out. And eventually the story ends well because the brothers came back. If Sean, I think we've got a little caption somewhere not the next one of famine that was the land of plenty and the famine and then the brothers came back and eventually Joseph identified himself to them and what we need to remember here though was that the story was not starting there with the brothers the story with the brothers had started way back in chapter 37 we're up about chapter 48 here because if you remember when Joseph was younger he had a dream and he dreamt that the brothers, the sheaves of corn, would bow down to him. And he shared that with his brothers, and his brothers just mocked him and laughed at him and said, that's ridiculous, when would we ever bow down to you? But here we are where the point where the brothers did come and bow down to Joseph and acknowledge that he'd saved them and helped them. So with two stories there that had a good ending. Joseph arranged for his family to go to Gothen and they went to a rich land in agreement with the Pharaoh and uh, Joseph and Jacob and all his brothers uh, continued there. So we see the integrity of Joseph. He stayed loyal to God. He stayed true to the picture that had been given him. He stayed true to the word. So what do, we, what do we learn from that? What can we take from that? What can we admire in Joseph? Well, we can admire his integrity, but we can also see that sometimes God gives people some strange tasks to do. And um, sometimes we are obedient and sometimes we're not. Sometimes we think, God, that is really weird. I, I can't do that. That's out of my comfort zone. Uh, I'm pleased Stacey's here this morning because she'll remember this occasion. 
Um, a few years ago, well, when I was still working at Safe Families, we went off to Soul Survivor, and we were working in a team, and uh, some of you might have heard this story before, and um, when we were in the team, somebody came and said, would the team like to go and have a prophecy time with some people? So Susan and I went off, and there was three people uh, who were just sitting on chairs at the front, and we sat with them, and, uh, and they just, we prayed, and they just shared words of prophecy for me. And the first thing they said was, I see you uh, in a football field. God sees you in a football field uh, with a young lad playing football. And I just thought, anybody who knows me knows that I'm not a lover of football. I wouldn't know one end of a goalpost to another. And I'm not interested in football in any shape or form. And I just said, well, God, that's a load of rubbish because I will never be on a football field playing football with anybody. And then the person started sharing about other things which actually were very pertinent and very relevant to me at the time. And uh, anyway, I didn't think any more of it. I just thought, well, somebody got something wrong there. And then a few months later, we were in the office and... Um, we got this uh, request from a mother in, an air, in, in the northeast who wanted somebody to take her son out on a night to play football. So I spent ages ringing around all the carers we had and I found this lady who lived nearby who was her and her husband were willing to take this little boy to play football on the night. And I thought, yes! I'm off the hook. I haven't got to go and take to play football. Then she rang up the next morning and said, Hey, I'm really sorry, Stuart. Our family circumstances have changed. Um, we, can't, uh, we can't do it. And I think Stacy was one of the people who said, Well, there you go, Stuart. It looks like you're doing it. And so for the next year, I would go on a Wednesday. I got out of work early. That was good. And went and picked him up took him to the football ground where he had a training session. I didn't have to play with him. Had a training session and uh, he played football. I got back, I went down to McDonald's, had a coffee while he was playing. Came back in time to be able to see him playing and say, well done, you've, that was a good goal you scored there. I saw a little bit of it, took him home and, uh, and that was it. Then we got a phone call to say, uh, the headmistress has reported back that little, that little boy's behaviour in school has improved 100% because somebody's taken an interest in him and done something with him outside of his family. And you know, that's what God does. He, he gets us to do really strange things and you, and you, and you question, don't you, what, what he's asking you to do. But he has a purpose and a plan behind all those things. Um, we were uh, another time we were at Soul Survivor, and um, we, we've got really good friends there who we'd known. We only used to see them every year when we went to camp. And uh, one day I was talking to my um, friend's wife, and uh, my friend was a, is a, a, a vicar in well, he's now Bishop of Plymouth, but he was a vicar at the time in Exeter. And uh, and it came to my head just to say to his wife, "Have you ever thought about going into the ministry about being a vicar?" And she just went, oh, you're not going to believe this, Stuart, she says. But God's been really challenging me the last two weeks. And uh, you've just answered uh, 
the prayer that I had about what it, whether I should do it or not do it. And fortunately, uh, she went ahead with it, and we were, had the privilege earlier this year of going to her uh, induction as vicar in Exeter uh, earlier in the year. So what can we learn from this? What can we take away from it? Well, what I want us to do is just to be encouraged to do something that you're resisting doing. Perhaps you've been putting off doing it, and, but you, God keeps niggling at you and you keep thinking, yes, no, no, yes, no, yes, no. I just want to encourage you to do it. Even though it might seem ridiculous, encourage you to do it. If Joseph hadn't responded to what God wanted him to do, just look at the difference the world might have been in uh, in that time. And secondly, if you've got a word of encouragement for somebody, uh, you might think, well, I don't know how this fits. But it doesn't matter. Just share it with people. You might say, look, look, Terry, I've got this word. It seems out of character. It seems totally wrong. But I'm just going to share it with you. Take, take it and make of it whatever you can. If need be, just throw it away. But maybe in three months' time, Terry would love to take a young guy to play football. He'd be happy to do that. So there's two encouragements there. One, if God's asking you to do something, don't resist. Get on with it. And secondly, if you feel you've got a word for somebody else, don't be shy to share it with them because that will make a difference. I'm reminded of that scripture that says, all things work together for good for those who love the Lord. And we can share all things with people about what God wants us to do. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. The, the brothers didn't know that when they hurt Joseph, I'm not saying we're going to go out and beat somebody up because God will do something good out of that. Uh, what I am saying is that God has a way of changing things around. So what seems not good is turned into something good uh, in time. I'm sure we've all got stories in our lives where we've met people and thought, this isn't going to work out. But when we've prayed about it, things have worked out in a right way. Sometimes I think we're also discouraged by the devil. The devil will, will put obstacles in our way and we've just got to step over though and say, that's not a good thing. We're going to step over that and move forward. So the two things there, be encouraged to do something and secondly, be an encourager to somebody else. Okay? Short but sweet. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we just thank you that uh, we see in Scripture that you can turn what seems like a bad thing, you can turn it into a good thing by a miracle or by acting out your will. Father, I pray that each one of us will just know your calling in our hearts, that you'll speak to us, that you'll turn us around, that you'll encourage us to be brave, to be stepping out in faith, knowing that your hand is upon us. And give us courage to be encouragers to other people as well. Even though we might think what we're saying doesn't make sense to us, it will make sense to the person we're talking to. Father, we pray a blessing for each one of us. In Jesus' name. Amen.
and I should have invited the band to come up but what, what worked works out good in the end <laughs> bang bang